Hello, this is Peggy Joyce Ruth. Welcome to our podcast and hope you enjoy this teaching. Turn your Bibles to Esther. We're going to be talking about Esther in our next walk through the Bible. We started in Genesis and we've been going chronologically, taking the main characters and doing a walk through the Bible. And we don't do that every week, but we put one in ever so often. And so we're going to be looking at Esther now. Let me give you just a little bit of background. Esther lived long after King David and King Solomon and after all the years of grandeur when Israel was just the prosperous and famous nation in the world. And it was after the northern and southern kingdom were divided. Esther is after all the years when the northern kingdom, when Israel brought in all the idol worship. It's after the northern kingdom, after having continuous idol worship, after God had warned them over and over that they finally were taken into Assyria, never to be heard of again. Esther comes after even Judah, the southern kingdom, was taken into captivity in Babylon. And then even after these Jewish people were taken out of Babylon and taken on over into Persia. A lot of people don't realize that after they were taken into captivity in Babylon, that they were later transported to Persia when Persia overtook Babylon. So we're going to see that Esther, this story takes place at the very end of the Old Testament. There's 400 years of silence between the Old and New Testament. We're going to find this is just right before those 400 years of silence. Now, the Feast of Purim is introduced in the book of Esther. And a lot of people think of that as one of the feasts, like the Feast of Passover, the Feast of Tabernacles. It's really not. It is a feast, but it's not a religious feast. It's a feast celebrating their right to live, their right to exist. Because, see, we're going to find out that the people there in Persia, some of them wanted to totally annihilate them. So they're celebrating the very fact that they had the right to exist. Now, Esther has often been described as a masterpiece of literature. Some people call it a literary treasure. And these are secular literary standards that have lifted this book of Esther up to that degree. Now, some say that the book of Esther resembles the Joseph narrative. And yes, in a lot of ways it does because it shows the rise to power and the rise of influence of a Hebrew outsider within a royal court in a foreign land. And it's amazing to me, we see Joseph, we see Esther, we see Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, all of these different Jewish people from the Old Testament were taken to a foreign land And then they were put in the government in that foreign land and they went clear up some of them next to the king himself. Now the events in the book occurred about a hundred years after the leading citizens now of the Jewish nation were carried into exile in Babylon. And of course that took place at 587 BC. So Esther's gonna be taking place at 487 BC, around that time. And like I said, that 400 years of silence. So we're talking about about 87 years before the end of the Old Testament. Now, the Persians had overthrown Babylon. And shortly after they overthrew the country of Babylon, these Persians then allowed these Jewish exiles to go back home. They said, you can go back home now. You've been in exile all this time. If you want to, it's fine. You can go home. And many of them did return back to Jerusalem. But we're going to find that thousands of them stayed there in Persia. 
Well, it's probably because they had intermixed among the people. They've been there a hundred years. And so they're intermixing now among the people, but they've probably even intermarried to some degree. And they have their homes there and they have their jobs there and they're not being mistreated. So a lot of them decided to stay. Now this book is clearly going to show how God protects his chosen people even when they've been scattered throughout the nations of the world. You know, it didn't matter that they weren't in their homeland. No matter where they were, God's hand was always with them. We're going to find that beginning in the book of Genesis, we find that God made it very clear that he was going to bless his covenant people. And he did. The only time they got out from under his blessing is when they kept going after idol worship and they kept disobeying his laws. And they finally got completely out from under his covering. But God was willing to bless them. And even after they had sinned, he was willing to forgive them and to bring them back. He also showed in the word clear from the beginning of the Old Testament that a curse would come on those who came against his chosen people. Now the book of Esther shows how God kept his promise at every stage of history. And one unusual fact about the book is that the name of God is never mentioned in the book. And so for that reason, there's a lot of people who say, well, Esther really doesn't have any place in the Bible. And they think of it as just some patriotic Jewish book. They say, you know, it shouldn't be in the Bible. But you know what? That's a very harsh criticism. And it's really unfair to the book of Esther because when you study this book very carefully, you're going to see that the hand of God is on every page. It's a lot more than just a patriotic book. We're going to find that we see the people loving and obeying God and giving their allegiance to God when Esther calls them to a fast and to prayer. And we're going to see how God's protection was there with them. And that protection literally speaks for itself. It shows us unquestionably that God is involved and it teaches a very valuable lesson about the sovereignty of God. Now in the book of Esther, as much as in any other Old Testament book, we're going to see the hand of God at work. So you may hear later or you may be reading and see different articles saying that it doesn't belong in the Old Testament. Don't listen to that. It was put in the Old Testament for a purpose and by the power of the Holy Spirit. And it has so much to say to us today. Now, even though the enemies of the covenant people now, they may triumph for a season. And we see this happening over and over. But God holds the key to ultimate victory. And that's what I'm wanting us to see today. Now, the story takes place in Persia about 200 miles east of Babylon. And this information is significant because God is not just saving his covenant people, but this intervention of God is literally the salvation of the whole world because God has promised that he's going to bring the Messiah through this nation. And he protects this nation even after they've disobeyed, even after they've gone into captivity. He still protects them and takes care of them because this is the nation through which he's going to bring his Messiah, his son. Now it's the last book included in the Jewish section of, of history in the Old Testament and it's placed after the book of Nehemiah. But you know, actually it takes place 30 years before Nehemiah went back to build the wall. So I don't really know why it's misplaced a little bit. But we find that Esther has probably been queen for some 30 years now by the time Nehemiah goes back. So she's a queen of great prominence by that time. And later you can look up in Nehemiah 2 verse 6 and you find that when Nehemiah is asking the king if he can go back and build the wall around the city, it makes one little statement in there and it says the queen was sitting beside him. 
Now, how many times do you find just a little statement like that? Because the king is usually the only one they even mention. But in this particular case, when he gave permission to Nehemiah, it says the queen was sitting beside him. And many scholars believe that this was Queen Esther. Like I say, she would have been on the throne about 30 years by this time. Now, the objective of this Bible study is for us to see the trust that God required out of his people. In spite of the fact that they were facing impossible situations, in spite of the fact that they're in a foreign land. Now, I'm wanting us to put ourselves in their place, and then I want us to just kind of project that same trust into our lives because, you know what? If God could expect that kind of trust out of his people 500 years before Messiah was even birthed, you know, how much more should he require trust out of us who live on this side of the cross. We've seen the exact replica of the Father in Christ Jesus. We have a covenant with new and better promises. And naturally, God's going to expect more out of us. And yet we're going to see extreme trust now in these people. I want you just to think, could I have that kind of trust if I had been living back in that day and time? Now, we're living in the end days, and we're going to be facing some hard situations at times. But I'm going to tell you what, nothing any harder than what they faced. And yet they came through in trust. So as we go through the story now, I want you to see the trust level. I want you to contrast Haman, who is an example of a man of the world, and contrast him now to Esther and Mordecai, who definitely represent a man and woman of God. And I want you to see the difference in how they react to life. And we need to be reacting to life differently than the world. And we see in this case, they stood firm for God every single time, no matter what Haman was coming through with. And God is expecting us to be very different from the world. There should be just a definite line drawn. You know, there was a time when there were a lot of gray areas. Do you know what? Not anymore. Now, we're going to find that everything is either right or it's wrong. There are no gray areas anymore. And God's expecting us to step across that line on the right side and make a difference in our world. Okay, in Esther chapter 1 verse 1, I'm basically going to be telling you the story. It would take a long time to read it, but I'm going to be quoting some of the scriptures. But I wanted you to kind of keep up with me because some of the things you might want to mark in the margin of your Bible. Now, in verse 1, it tells us that the Jews were in exile in a foreign land. Of course, we know that. Now, they were not in bondage like they were in Egypt. They didn't have taskmasters over them. By this time in history, in their exile, they're doing pretty well. They're comfortable. And they're allowed now to have jobs. They're allowed to live and work in the land. They're allowed to have their own homes and rear their children. Now, King Ahasuerus is king over 127 different provinces. It tells us that in verse 2. And it tells us that it's all the way from India to Ethiopia. So we're talking about a very large kingdom. And that's going to be important later on. Now, Greek historians have described this king Ahasuerus. And I'm going to give you the description. They say that he was a very, very cruel man one of the most cruel of all the kings. If you'll keep that in the back of your mind, because I'm going to show you something later on in the story that is almost a paradox. But they say that he was a very sensuous man, and you're going to see that easily as we go along. And they said that he was capable of having very sudden, impulsive, unmotivated changes of mind. In other words, he could be very pleasant, and all of a sudden, just, you know, in the snap of a finger, he could turn and have these outbursts of anger and these fits of cruelty. 
Now keep in mind, this is not the Bible describing this king. The description is coming from the Greek historians and their description is certainly not very flattering. Okay, in chapter one, verse three, we see that this is in the third year of his reign and he decides to give this great banquet. Now everyone in the capital is invited from the least to the greatest and he brings them all out into the garden of his palace. And what he's doing, he's trying to display all of his riches, all of his royal glory. Now the banquet is the culmination or the grand finale now of this display of riches. He's been showing off his riches for the past six months. And see, the pagans in that day and time, pride and power was the motivating forces behind the pagan governments. And if we look at the pagan governments today, pride and power are still the two big things. But he wanted the world to know how powerful his kingdom was. He wanted the world to know how rich his kingdom was. And so down in verse six, it says that his palace was absolutely just beautiful beyond description. It tells about all of the purple linens that would hang on the wall. It tells about the gold and the silver couches. Now, when we think of a gold couch, we think of something that maybe we've painted. He's not talking about a gold couch that he's painted. We're talking about solid gold couches and couches made out of silver. And all the pavement in the palace was mosaic. Some of the mosaic was made out of marble. Some of the rooms were made out of mother of pearls. Some of them were made out of precious stone. They had precious stone in them. And then when he started to serve his guests, he served them out of vessels of gold, pure gold, in verse 7. Now see, the world can be very appealing because the world is always trying to impress, always trying to show off their riches. And so when someone is wanting to feel big and, and feel important, well, they kind of like to rub shoulders with people in the world. That makes them feel good. And so King Ahasuerus has been putting on quite a show. And at the same time, in verse 9, Queen Vasti now, she is giving a banquet for all of the women in the palace who belonged to the king. So he had a lot of wives. He had a lot of concubines. He only had one queen. But there were many, many women that belonged to the king. And on the seventh day now of the celebration, the king commands that Queen Vasti put on her royal crown and come to the banquet. And it's because he wanted to show off her beauty to the people. I was reading a lot of the different secular studies on this. And some of the scholars say that he was wanting her to come only wearing her crown. That's why it was saying to put on her crown and come before the people. Now he's shown off all of his riches. Now he wants to show off his beautiful wife. And in verse 11, she refuses. I can't say I blame her for refusing if that be the case. But anyway, she refuses. Whether that was the reason or not, we don't know. But in verse 14, all of the attendants are just horrified. And in verse 17, they tell us why they were horrified. They tell the king that the queen's conduct is going to put the kingdom in a lot of trouble. What they said to the king, they said, we fear that the women of the kingdom, when they find out that you commanded your queen to do something and she wasn't willing to do it, they're going to say to their husbands, hey, if the queen doesn't have to obey the king, we don't have to obey our husbands. And so these attendants and these advisors now, they start pleading with the king because they see all the contempt and all the anger that's going to come on the land. Now their main fear, it even states that their main fear was because they were afraid that their wives wouldn't obey them. 
And so they saw big trouble up ahead for them personally and for the kingdom. And so in verse 19, they talked the king into making this law and taking the position away from Queen Vashti and giving it to someone more worthy. A moment of anger, I'm sure that the king decided that that was a good idea. And so he sends out this edict. Now in Persia, anytime a king made a law, it could never be revoked, even by the king. He couldn't even revoke his own laws. And if you'll remember when King Darius had made the law that everybody bowed down to him, when Daniel refused, Darius was just horrified because Daniel had to be thrown into the lion's den. And even though it was Darius's law, he still couldn't revoke the law. He had to allow them to go ahead and throw Daniel into the lion's den. So this was a big thing in the Persian government. And so in chapter 1, verse 22 now, he sends letters out to all the provinces and he tells them how he's going to take this position away from the queen. He's going to choose another queen that's more worthy and they're soon to have a new queen. Now, if we went immediately from chapter one to chapter two, we'd be a little bit confused because if you look in verse one of chapter two, it says when the anger of King Ahasuerus subsided, he remembered what Vasti had done. And we think, well, my goodness, what on earth does it mean that he remembered what she had done? It sounds like he's talking about the day before. And we think, was he so drunk that he couldn't remember from the day before what she had done? But when you study this in history, you find out that there are four years between chapter one and chapter two. And during those four years, there's all kinds of disastrous battles that come against the Persian government. All of these battles started taking place right after the banquet right after all of this display of wealth. Do you know why? You know why these battles took place? It was because he showed his wealth for six months. Well, all the enemies decided, hey, look at all this wealth. We want part of it. And so they immediately started coming against King Ahasuerus to get his wealth. Now, the same thing happened with Hezekiah, if you'll remember. When the Babylonian government came down to bring gifts to him when he was sick, if you'll remember, he opened up the treasure house. He showed them everything that he had. And when Isaiah came in, do you remember what Isaiah said? He said, what have you done? What have you shown to them? And he said, well, I've shown them everything. And he was just horrified. Isaiah just couldn't believe what he had done. And immediately then, the Babylonians came down and made war with Hezekiah. And that's when they were taken off into captivity. And so no wonder then, chapter 2, verse 1 says, after these things because a lot of time had passed. And so he's gone through some life and death situations and it's probably put a lot of things in perspective in his mind. And his anger has subsided. And he's probably thinking now that all those things that happened four years ago, that's pretty insignificant compared to what he's gone through. But he does remember what Vasti did, but most of all, he remembers the law that he decreed. And there's no recounting. So the decision has been made that he has to get rid of the queen. It almost indicates that he couldn't believe what he had done. It almost indicates that he was a little frustrated that he had a beautiful queen and he's gotten rid of her. And so you can see now his advisors rushing into him. And in verse 2, these attendants then start suggesting, hey, let's bring all of the virgins of the land in. Let's bring them in and you can have your pick, the one that you want to take the place of Vasti. And so down in verse 5, we have the first mention of Mordecai. Now, Mordecai is a Jew. He's from the tribe of Benjamin. He's been living right there in the capital city. 
And in chapter two, verse six, it lets us know that he had been taken into exile from Jerusalem. Well, when you count it up, you realize that if he had actually been taken, he would be over a hundred years old. So obviously it's talking about the fact that his lineage, the tribe of Benjamin was taken a hundred years before. And so his family line now were taken into captivity, but he was born in exile. And then in chapter two, verse seven, we find the first mention of Esther. Now she's a cousin to Mordecai. When her parents died, she was orphaned. And so she went to live with Mordecai and he must've been a lot older because it said he took her in as one of his daughters. Now when the Persian officials come and take all the maidens into custody, well, of course, Esther is one of the young women that, that was taken in. And so for the next 12 months, they go through this beauty treatment. For six months, they use an oil of myrrh beauty treatment that they went through. Then they spent the next six months being anointed with all kinds of spices and elegant cosmetics. And the purpose was to make each one of these young virgins as beautiful as she could possibly be before she was taken before the king. And so finally in chapter two, verse 14, they're bringing these virgin maidens to the king one each evening. And then the next morning they're taken and they're placed into a second harem. And this is where they're going to remain for the rest of their lives. Now they might be called back before the king again at some point, but for the most part now, they're never going to even be thought about again. And I thought, you know how sad and how selfish to take all of the young, beautiful virgin maidens of the land and literally take them out of circulation, never to be able to marry, never to have a husband, never to rear children, never to have a home of their own. And I thought, you know, that's a pretty sad destiny. And so the enemy has some subtle ways of destroying other than just taking a life. And there's so many times that we see the enemy stealing and killing and destroying in a lot of different ways. That's why we need constantly to be taking authority and lining our lives up with the word of God because we're gonna to find today that there's many ways in which he tries to destroy if we're not in tune to the Holy Spirit and using the authority that's been given to us. But down in verse 15 now, chapter two, verse 15, it's Esther's turn to be brought before the king. And the Bible says that she found favor now in the eyes of not just the king, but she found favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And so in chapter two, verse 17, it says the king loved Esther more than all the other women. And she found favor and kindness with him more than all the other virgins. So that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vasti. Now we're not told what happened to Queen Vasti. More than likely she was just put with the other concubines to live out the rest of her life. But how sad for her that here she was the queen and now she's just put in that second harem with all the rest of them. Now, every secular description that we find of King Ahasuerus is that he was a very cruel man. And yet every time the Bible says anything about his attention and his treatment of Esther, it always says that he showed kindness to her. And she found favor with everyone. She actually had entered into a spiritual law because in Psalm 5 verse 2, it tells us when we're truthful and kind, that favor is hung about our necks. And that's true today. When we start exercising truthfulness and kindness, we'll accept that promise and say, Father, I thank you that I'm letting my life be a life of truth and, and my disposition to be that of kindness. And Lord, I thank you that I'm going to receive favor. Okay, so we do see the favor because in chapter two, verse nine, 
we find that the eunuch that was in charge of all of these young maidens gave Esther the very best place in the harem. Now, evidently they all had their little place where they lived and he gave her the very finest. She gave out kindness and the law of sowing and reaping came into effect and she received that kindness back even from a man that was known to be the most cruel man in that day and time. And that happens even in the world. You're going to find out when you show kindness, it may be somebody in the world and they may not have much goodness inside of them, but when you show kindness, it's going to bring the very best out in them. That's what God's calling us into, where we allow the fruit of the Spirit now to operate in such a way that it draws the very best out in other people. Now, it indicates here that the king put the crown on Esther without even waiting to see all the other virgins. After seeing her, it was obvious that he realized there's not anyone else that's going to compare. But wouldn't that be disappointing to all these other virgins? They've been taken in and each one of them thinks that maybe I'm going to be the queen. And then they don't even get a chance for the king to see them. And I thought about a Miss America pageant. All these girls from the different states, they come and they're dressed in their beautiful gowns and they're ready to come out and let the judges see them. And all of a sudden the judges just stop and they say, okay, we don't want to see anybody else. We've chosen Miss Texas to be the next Miss America. You know how disappointing that would be. And so you can imagine what these other young girls were going through. Now God planted a beautiful woman in the pathway to change history. And that shows us that God does use natural gifts. Now, natural gifts are not wrong. It's just how we use them. And here we find that Esther used her beauty and she used her kindness and her goodness to be able to bring out the best in every single person around her. And her natural beauty, this natural gift that was given to her, God used that literally to change history. Now, every talent that we have has been given to us to do great things in the kingdom of God. That's why we're given these talents. And some use their talents for God and some use their talents for self-promotion. And you know what? Right now, you may look in the world and you may see these people that are using their talents and maybe making a lot of money and they're getting prestige and all this. But you know what? Judgment day is going to come and we're each going to have to give an account of how we use our talents and how we've allowed what God's given to us to be used to further the kingdom of God. Now, down in chapter 2, verse 20, we see that Esther has not yet made it known to the king that she is Jewish. And the reason that she didn't tell the king is because Mordecai had told her, don't say anything yet. And so in verse 21, we find then that Mordecai would come and sit at the king's gate and he would listen to the king's officials and his attendants as they would go in and out of the kingdom it leaves the impression that he probably was in the service of the king. Maybe he got a position because of Esther. And this position now gave him access to sending and receiving messages to the queen. And so they were able to stay in constant contact. And when a situation would come up and she didn't know what to do, she would send word out to Mordecai and tell him what the situation was and he would send word back and give her advice and give her wisdom. So she didn't feel like she was all alone. And I thought, you know how good God is. He doesn't leave us all alone where we're having to make all these decisions ourselves. We can, of course, listen to the Holy Spirit, but he gives people around us that can love us and encourage us, and that's what he did for Esther. Now, one day, as Mordecai was sitting there, he heard two of the king's officials plotting to kill the king. And so he immediately sends word to Esther to tell the king about the plot. And so she informs the king, but she does it in Mordecai's name so that he's going to get credit for that information. 
And so after the investigation, they found that this was indeed true. And so these officials now were both hanged on the gallows. But nothing was done for Mordecai. It was as though he hadn't even said a word. And so immediately after this happened, we find in chapter 3, verse 1, that the king promotes Haman. And we think, oh my goodness, you know, here Mordecai has done this great thing and saved the king's life and he's just passed over and Haman is given this great promotion. But you know what? You're going to find that a lot of times in life, you're going to find this happening. There's going to be times when you feel like you've been all obedient and you feel like you've done everything just exactly right. But it seems like everybody else might be living just exactly like they want to and they're the ones getting promoted and all the good things are happening to them. And sometimes it's really tempting to say, God, I don't understand. I hear I'm doing everything right. I'm trying to please you. And it looks like everybody else is being blessed and I'm not. But you know what? It's tempting to say, Lord, do you even care? But God does care and he does notice and it's not over yet. Years ago, Jack was working for a certain company and he was on a rotating shift and he just had a hard time with that rotating shift where it changed every seven days. So he had just cried out to God and another position came open in management and it would be a daytime shift. And he was qualified for it and so he was so excited he put in his application and the job was given to someone else that didn't even have all the qualifications for it. And it was. It was very tempting to say, Lord, you know, we've been trying to serve you. We've been trying to do all the things that you've told us to do. And did you even notice, Lord? <laughs> you know, why did this happen? But you know what? In a little while, a few months later, another company came and Jack got a really good job there. And then it wasn't long until that department in the first company closed. And when it closed, the guy was out walking the street. They didn't give him another position in the building. He was out walking the street. And if Jack had gotten that first position, he would have been the one out walking the street. And it also, the time delay would have kept him from getting the job at the second company. That taught us so much. And we thought, you know what? God does care. But he cares enough not to always give us what we're begging for, but he gives us what we need. Now, there are certain things in the Bible you can know beyond a shadow of a doubt what God's will is. We know in health, and we know in He wants to meet our needs, and we know those things. But there's times when we're asking for certain things, and they don't come through, and we think, Lord, I just don't understand that. But see, God looks down the road. He can look down the road five years and ten years, and He knows what's going to be best for us, not only today, but ten years down the road. And that's where the trust comes in. And God requires this unconditional trust because it may not look so good in the interim, but you know what? God is not through. And that's what we have to keep saying. God's not through. And I remember one time when Angela called Jack and she was telling him something that just looked like it wasn't going right and she was so discouraged. And Jack said, are you dead? And she said, what does that mean? You know, and he said, are you dead? And she said, well, no. And he said, well, it's not over then. <laughs> you know, give God a little more time. And so sometimes we just have to tell ourselves, we're not, I'm not dead yet. God's not through working. But after he didn't get the promotion, after Haman was the one that got the promotion, to make matters worse then, the king required that everyone bow down to Haman and actually worship him. And of course, Mordecai was unwilling to do that. And so we find in verse 3 that he's called on the carpet. And in chapter 3, verse 3, he's asked, why are you transgressing the king's commandments? And in verse 4, he says, well, I'm a Jew that would violate the laws of my God. I can't do that. 
But when they went back and told Haman what he said, that wasn't good enough. That excuse wasn't nearly good enough. And so we find in chapter three, verse five, that Haman is just filled with rage. And he decides that the best way to get back at Mordecai is not just kill Mordecai, but he's decided he's gonna kill all of Mordecai's people, all the Jewish people. And so immediately he puts his evil plan into practice, into operation. And in chapter three, verse eight, Haman goes to King Ahasuerus and he tells him, he says, you know, you may not have noticed, but there are these people that are in exile and they're scattered throughout the land. They're through all of your providences. Now he doesn't mention Mordecai's name and probably that's because he's concerned that the king will remember that Mordecai was the one that saved his life. So he doesn't mention his name, but he plants the idea in the king's mind that he is going to be harmed. And he just very subtly starts telling him, hey, these people are here, they live by different rules and you never know when they're going to rise up and they're going to become a harm to your kingdom. And so the king starts thinking about that. Of course, the king has no idea that he's being manipulated and driven into deception. But he goes ahead and he tells him, he says, if it be pleasing to the king, let it be decreed that they all be destroyed. So he's planted the little idea that they could harm you, they could harm your kingdom, but I've got a plan. And he tells him the plan. And he said, not only that, but I'll pay the money into the king's treasure to carry out this plan. In other words, king, if you'll just let me kill these people, you don't even have to pay for it. You won't be out a penny. Well, when a man is in the world, he has to be his own source because he doesn't know God. He doesn't know what we have when we have the Holy Spirit and we have the power of God behind us to help us. And so the man of the world has to push and pull to make things happen. Now, I'm sure that sounded pretty good to the king. Not only will he get rid of all of his enemies because now in his mind, these Jews have become his enemies. And not only will he be able to get rid of the enemies, but he doesn't even have to pay for it. And so I'm sure that sounded really good to the king. So he buys the idea and he makes a law. And so in chapter three, verse 10, the king took his signet ring, took it off, gave it to Haman, gave him full power of attorney. And in verse 11, he told him the silver is yours and all the people do with them whatever you please. And so I tell you what, Haman does not waste any time. And in chapter three, verse 13, letters were sent by couriers all over the king's providences. And they were told to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all of the Jews, both young and old, women, children, all of them. And it was to be done on the 13th day of the 12th month. And then he says, you can seize their possessions. You can take that as plunder. And then verse 14 tells us that a copy of this law was posted everywhere. I can just see Haman. He makes sure that everyone in the kingdom knows about it. Now that's quite an undertaking when you think about it. You know, we're talking about 120 different providences and they didn't have a car or a bus or a plane they could jump into. I mean, these had to be carried by couriers all over the land and posted everywhere. And can't you imagine the fear that filled the land? Not just fear in the hearts of the Jews, but think about all these people. They've been living next to these Jewish people. These have been their neighbors. Possibly their children may have in, intermarried and they may be working for each other. And here they're being told that their neighbors are enemies to the king. And so are they going to believe that they've been deceived all this time? I can just imagine the confusion. And when you look at chapter three, verse 15, it says that while the city was in confusion, it says the king and Haman sat down to eat. 
And I thought, you know, that is such a picture of the enemy. He puts confusion on people and then, you know, he goes on his merry way. And that's what we need to realize that when the enemy's trying to put confusion, we need to take a step back and realize that it is the enemy at work. That's when we need to take the authority. And these Jews know that when a law goes out, it cannot be repealed. They know that. And so I'm sure that they're thinking, we have no means of escape. And I'm sure that fear was just running rampant. And you can imagine what it would be like if a law went out today and we had an evil government and all of a sudden they sent out a decree that all the Christians were going to be killed on a certain day. I mean, look at the confusion that would take place. Look at the panic. So you can imagine what these Jews went through. And so Haman had cast lots to find out when to make this thing happen. Tradition tells us the reason he cast lots is because he wanted to find out when would be a lucky day. That's how it put it. And so he threw the dice and it fell on a particular holiday which was 11 months away. Now, the normal, natural impulse would have been for Esther to be very mad at the king, very angry that the king would give Haman this kind of power of attorney. It would also be very tempting, I'm sure, for her to be upset with God and to get into bitterness and to get into hurt and to fear. And that's what we have to watch for in ourselves because when trouble starts piling up on us, if we start thinking, oh, this is not fair and we start getting into disappointment, out the door is going to go our trust. And when that trust goes out the door, then we're going to find uh, we'll start falling into the temptation to get into fear and to get into sin. But you know what? We don't see this happening with Esther. We don't see this at all. And it's real easy for people to blame God during times of troubles and to think, Lord, why did you allow this to happen? But if a queen back in that day and time could trust God, how much more God expects us to give him unconditional trust. And so we find in chapter 4, verse 1, Mordecai immediately starts seeking God. He starts seeking an answer. He tears his clothes. Back in that day and time, they put on sackcloth and ashes. It says that he went into the midst of the city and he started wailing bitterly. Okay, well, that's the way they did when they were seeking God. He was crying out for an answer. And sometimes it might not hurt us to put on a little sackcloth and ashes and wail when things are not right and say, God, what am I doing wrong? Not God, where are you and why haven't you done what you need to do? But Lord, show me, open my heart so that I can know what I need to be doing. So he's seeking God for an answer. And finally, in verse 8, he sends word to Esther to go before the king and to plead for herself and for her people. Now he had been fasting and praying and he realized this is why Esther's in the position that she's in. And he knew now that their hope was for her to stand in the gap. And so in, in verse 11, she sends word back to Mordecai and she says, I can't. There's no way I can do that. She says, the king has not sent for me in over 30 days. And she knew he was a cruel man, even though he had been kind to her. And she knew that if anyone went before the king who had not been called for, that they could immediately be killed. She didn't have any idea how he was going to react. She also, I'm sure, was very fearful of the fact that when he found out that she was Jewish, that he might immediately want her killed, want her out of his sight. And so we see in verse 14 that Mordecai tells her that just because she was in the palace, she was going to have protection. They're going to discover that you're of Jewish origin. And he said, when they do, you too will be put to death because he said, remember, this is a law. And even the king himself is not going to be able to protect you. And so in verse 14, 
It says, for if you remain silent at this time, he said, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Now, I want you to see the trust that's going forth out of Mordecai here. I want you to notice his faith. Relief and deliverance, he said, will come for the Jews. If it doesn't come from the palace, it'll come from someplace else. God is not going to leave his chosen people. He said, we're going to be protected. But he said, if you don't help, then when that help does come, it's going to be too late for you. It's not going to do you any good. Now, that was a strong word. But see, Mordecai all of a sudden has realized that the whole reason that Esther is in this place is because God has put her there for just that time. And then the famous words when he said, who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. We need to each realize that every single one of us are in certain places, maybe our place of work or maybe friends with a certain person. And God has placed us there for such a time as this. And especially in these end days, we're going to find that the places in which we find ourselves, we're not just there by accident. We're going to find that God has placed us in different places. We have our sphere of influence and God's put us there so that we're able to put forth the gospel and plant the gospel in the hearts of the people around us. And if we don't do it, those people in our sphere of influence may not hear and they may not be able to receive what God had for them. It is more important today than it has ever been for us to get a kingdom perspective. In other words, to see things from the angle of the kingdom of God and realize that we have a part to play. Each one of us has a place. We've not been born in these end days just for no reason. We've not been born in these end days just because we happen to be born in this century. We are here because God has a job for us to do. And just exactly like Esther was here because she had a job to do. All of those early years of training that she had put in being submissive to Mordecai, they finally came forth. It was so worthwhile. And you know what? One of the most important things that we need to learn is submission. Submission to our line of authority. Because, you know, it can not only save our lives, but it can save the lives of other people. And thank goodness she had been taught submission. And so when Mordecai said these words to her, she didn't wait six months. When God tells us something to do, we need to be obedient immediately. And sometimes our very life now and the lives around us are going to depend on our willingness to be quickly obedient. And so we find in verse 16, she says, okay, go assemble all the people, have them fast and pray for three days. She said, I and my maidens will fast and pray for three days. And she said, then I go before the king. She said, if I've been placed here for such a time as this, then I'm ready to do whatever it is that I've called to do. And she said, if I perish, I perish. Now that was total unconditional trust. Oh goodness, how much more God is expecting that out of us in these days. God showed me one time, I was asking him about trust. This is going to date me, but our children were born back in the 60s. And back then, one of the milk formulas for babies was called SMA. And way back there, I was asking God, tell me about trust. And the Lord just spoke in my spirit and I've never forgotten it. He said, I'm going to give you the SMA formula. Of course, I had that. I was using it with babies. And I thought, what does that mean? And he said, it's the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego formula. And I've loved that. And it's always meant something to me because Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and what they did, they gave their statement of faith. And they said, our God will deliver us. But then they gave their statement of faithfulness. But even if he doesn't, we're still going to trust him. And so that needs to be the formula we go by. That needs to be our 
SMA formula where, Lord, your word has told me this. You will deliver me. I know it. I stake my life on it. But even if you didn't, it doesn't matter. I'm still going to trust you. There's nothing that's going to be able to keep me from going on with you. I'm trusting you and that settles the issue. And when we settle that issue, we're going to find out the enemy quits bugging us. He doesn't want to bother the people who have said, I put my hand to the plow and I'm not looking back. There's nothing in this world that's going to keep me from going with God. And so Esther is ready to go in. She's built up her trust. And so in chapter 5, verse 1, it says that she puts on all of her beautiful royal robes and she goes in before the king. That's as far as we can go tonight. We'll finish this up next week. But I love the story of Esther. Every time that I hear this story, it just thrills my heart to realize that look at the trouble God goes to, to put things in place, to make things work. And he does that for every single one of us. In whatever situation we're in, God is always putting things in place and putting people in place so that things can work out exactly according to his perfect will. Thank you for listening. Please share this teaching with anyone you think it would minister to. If you would like to listen to more in-depth teachings, please sign up for our Psalm 91 family at PeggyJoyceRuth.org.